I am so excited to be working with Pandora to bring you this season of Rain with Josh Smith. The new Pandora Me collection is all about embracing who you are and celebrating self-expression, just like this very podcast. The stunning new collection allows you to personalise chunky chain bracelets, rings, hoops and necklaces to really express your own style. There are no rules when it comes to expressing who you are and how you feel with rings that can be connected together, mix and match links to create unique bracelets and pendants that can be added to necklaces or earrings. There are so many different ways to represent who you are with this completely customizable collection. And there's something for everyone with prices ranging from 15 to 200 pounds. It's affordable luxury at its finest. The new Pandora Me collection is available to shop now. Just head over to uk.pandora.net to check it out or pop into your nearest store. I'm heading over there now as there's a silver chain necklace I have my eye on and a stunning link spelling out freedom that feels very me. Hey, I'm Josh Smith and welcome to another series of my podcast, Rain. If you're new here, first of all, where have you been? been babe but second and most importantly i'm so glad you are here now this podcast is all about being the kings and queens of our own lives and it's full of empowering stories from brilliant guests as well as some incredible words to live by and of course a lot of lols too we all look at our favorite celebrities and think they've got it all and it's so easy to forget no matter who you are and what you do ultimately we are all the same In each episode, I'll be chatting to some of our favourite stars about the most human of experiences, how they've dealt with tough times and overcome them to reign over their lives. I've always found these conversations so inspiring, whether that's me making changes in my life, my relationships, or just getting my gym gear on. So I'm really hoping you will too. Welcome to Rain. In this episode of Rain, we are joined by a king, in his own right, it's Lucifer star Tom Ellis, and let's get real, I'm obsessed, and we're all a little bit obsessed. Tom Ellis first sets hearts aflutter playing Gary and Miranda, for he made people across the world thirsty AF playing the title character in Lucifer. The show follows Lucifer, who after getting bored as hell with his life in hell, abandons his throne and retires to Los Angeles to indulge in everything from sex to murder mysteries. If you haven't watched it, think of Murder, She Wrote, gets horny and after running for six seasons the show smashed netflix records with its final series being watched for a massive 1.3 billion minutes in a week not even stranger things can compete with those stats as tom gets ready to hang up his horns he opens up in this episode about how filming the show's rather risque sex scenes and the intense workouts affected his body image And for the first time, Tom talks about his relationship with his mental health and why he turned to therapy. It's so incredible to hear a man in the public eye talk so honestly about his mental well-being. We need more men like Tom, so I hope you find this episode just as inspiring as I do. Get ready to wear that crown with pride. Well, hey Tom, how are you? Hi. I'm good, thanks, Josh. How are you? I'm good. Well, first things first, congratulations. Not only is Lucifer just blowing up all over Netflix, left, right and centre, but you've just won the Pop Culture Icon Award at this year's Hollywood Critics Association Television Awards. How the fuck does it feel to be a pop culture icon? (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, to get recognition at the end of it from the critics was actually really lovely, and and um, to be appreciated for everything that we've done over the six years was like. So I'm chuffed. I'm really chuffed. I've never won anything before, apart from my 50 metres breaststroke at school. Oh my God, stunning achievement though. You need to get them both together. (laughs) (laughs) The mantelpiece. (laughs) Well, it's also one of the most successful streaming TV shows in the whole world. It's, It's smashed records that not even Stranger Things could touch, which is insane. I mean, from the moment you read that first script to sitting here today. Can you actually mm. contemplate that fact? I Well, I mean, I can't, because it's just like, it, it wasn't that simple as well, mm. do you know what I mean? It wasn't like this this show that kind of like came and then everyone was like, oh my God, have you seen this show? And everyone was watching it all at the same time. It just didn't happen that way. In fact, it happened in a way where we thought after, you know, a couple of years, we wondered whether we would be carrying on doing the show. And then, of course, Fox cancelled it. Um... And um, so, yeah, to sit here now talking about how ridiculously popular it's become and, you know, uh, all of these things is just, I didn't think that would ever happen, to be honest. Mm. And I mean, through six seasons of working on this show and playing this character, what do you think it's taught you and how do you think it's shaped you as a person? Um, I... I would say that I've, it's weird because I feel like the show Lucifer is a little bit like Lucifer growing, the character of Lucifer growing up and becoming a kind of adult in a new kind of like world. Mm. And in a strange sort of way, my life has mirrored that. I feel like I've grown up on this job a lot. Um, I feel like I came in wanting to, um, you know, obviously playing the lead role and all of those things was 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 great fun. But I also had come off a job realizing that when you're what they call the number one, because it means you're number one on the call sheet. That, that's your kind of like, that's your number allotted to you. But there's a lot of responsibility that comes with that that isn't just about turning up and doing, playing the character. And I I welcomed that responsibility and I really kind of, um, I really feel like that was something that, that I grew into as the job went on and becoming a leader on the set and the leader of, um, you know, with the crew and stuff and just having a kind of... Um, uh, a focus about where what we were doing at, at all times and stuff like that that sort of fell on my shoulders a lot but I, I welcomed that and um, and now I, I feel like I've come out the other end of it not just as someone who's acted in a show for six years but someone who wants to kind of mm. go on and, and produce more TV because I've got a much more you know, bigger understanding of TV as a whole not just from a from a character point of view um, and it's really kind of wet my appetite for for other other things, and knowing that I can do that, and knowing that I can work that schedule, and and hold myself accountable, and you know, be disciplined enough to 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 be prepared all the time, and all those sort of things. It's um, I've learned a lot about myself in that experience. Mm. I mean, the adulting process, in that sense, never stops, does it? I mean, you think you get to <laughs> no, like, it doesn't. you think you're going to get to like thirty or forty and be like, oh, I'm a fully fledged, complete adult, and then you get to this point, you're like, mm. I'm still not. I still feel like a 12... There is a 12-year-old boy locked inside this body, and, like, I kind of, you know, I don't know if I'll ever shed that, so to speak, because that's also part of, like, who I am, but it's... Um, I think I've had to quieten the voice of that little boy sometimes on this on this process, and, and yeah, I, I guess um, do a few things and, and face a few things that I would have shied away from in the past, mm. and um, in order for, like, the greater good, in order for, like, you know, creatively that we're all pushing in the same direction, and having uncomfortable talks with people about things and stuff like that, I've really sort of taken that on as a role in this. And um, 
I um, it, it, it's been the whole experience for me has been life changing. Mm. What would you have usually shied away from before in that sense? Um, I just kind of like I just want people to get on with each other. That's like mm. like my thing, but I but not at the expense of um, people being bullish. Mm. Uh, not at the expense of um, like if I see something that I think that's not going to work out well. I can see that an idea is bad before it's even kind of taken full form. Nipping it in the bud early rather than like wasting time and letting things play out and all of those things. And it's not about having, it is about being patient with people, but it's also about being kind of firm with people, um, which is something that is not, doesn't come naturally to me, basically. <laughs> My kids will, have, will attest to that. <laughs> but like, um, I just, you know, I don't like confrontation. Hmm. And along along these six years, you know, to get to the point we've got to, there's been a few kind of moments of confrontation that I've really had to kind of like figurehead, um, and uh, but for the greater good. And I, you know, that, those are those are things that I would wouldn't have done back in the day. I would have just gone, yeah, whatever, whatever. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, finding those boundaries is one of the hardest things to do. And I mean, we've been. I talk a lot all the time on this podcast to women who work in the entertainment industry and the change the landscape. What's gone on in the entertainment industry over the last five years, really? And I think mm-hmm. also as a leading man, there comes a responsibility with that as well to be an ally for women in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Have you? in your career how how has that relationship with allyship to women changed do you think i think that um i've always i've always had a strong female presence in my life because growing up i had like three sisters and no brothers mm. um i've got th- you know um i've got three daughters and um and you know it's kind of something that i'm just used to as a dynamic of having female energy in my life and 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 therefore thinking about that maybe a bit more than a man who hasn't had that mm. energy in his life. I'm glad that this movement has happened. I'm glad that people are, you know, uh, are speaking up and I'm glad that people feel empowered to speak up because I'd never really thought before about what, how collectively male energy can be toxic. Um, and, and, and it is something that is, you know, proven itself to be rife, not just in this industry, but just in all, you know, in, in the world basically. And, and toxic masculinity is something, thankfully, I didn't have loads of it in my life growing up. But I've become as an adult much more aware of it and, and much more of aware of when I've touched those circles and been, in, you know, been involved in conversations like that. Um, and now I kind of, um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I, I just, I've become a lot more tolerant and open and just wanting to learn about other people um, as I've gotten older. I've tried to open my mind as opposed to close it. And I think part of part of this six year journey on Lucifer has been part of has tied into that mm. as well. I think that's so amazing to hear because I really do feel like we need more men in the public eye saying those kind of things and also living that kind of experience and not just saying it but living those words as well. And I think what's so amazing about the character you created in Lucifer is you've created this very layered masculine character like you know he's got faults he's got dark sides he's got he comes to really go on this journey of self-discovery himself as well with that in mind how did you try to build and reflect a new kind of masculinity with this character i felt it was an opportunity actually to break down some of those kind of assumptions Mm. about what a leading character would be 
So whilst there are some sort of alpha male tendencies of Lucifer in certain areas, there are also, you know, I, I remember people sort of talking to me about it after the first couple of seasons. And so I remember one journalist in particular going, you know, he's quite camp, isn't he, Lucifer? And I was like, what do you mean by that? And they were like, well, he's quite campy. He's quite sort of... And I, and I, I was like, do you mean that he's just... He's okay about the way he presents himself <laughs> in any way, mm. shape or form? And, and they were like, oh, I suppose that's what it is. But, but I think they were trying to get at the fact that he's someone, you know, and we sort of, we alluded to this in the storyline as well, that Lucifer, you know, is is openly, uh, I, I don't want to say bisexual, he's just a sexual being who's open to having sex with anybody, basically. And that never guided him and he never felt judged by that. And he's not kind of hampered by these rules that that uh, human society kind of has, has laid out. So um, it was an opportunity to be a bit freer in that regard. And to say this is cool, and we've you know we've kind of ex- we've we've explored things with other characters in the show as well to do with sexuality and openness. And um, weirdly, we were never a show that kind of like tried to be advocating for the LGBTQ community or anything like that actively. But it's just something that's happened through through the way that we've presented and, and grown our characters, basically. And I think that's what's so amazing about it in a way, because obviously the sex <laughs> the sex scenes in this show. I mean, there's a lot of thirsty people <laughs> out there for those <laughs> scenes, but they're very powerful in the way that they treat sexuality and just putting it to the fore and it almost just being celebrated as well. And I mean, yeah. for you, approaching those kind of sex scenes, for want of a better word, and that exploration of sexuality, how empowering has that been in some ways? Um, I think... It's weird because it, 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 whilst we've been shooting this show, the, there's lot, lots has been going on in the world. Mm. Like we started this show just before Trump came in, and there's so much, um, there's so much kind of like stuff that that became so abhorrent in the real world that um, we had an opportunity. Well, you know that we were running something parallel to all these horrible things that are happening in, in real life to kind of, to, like you say, celebrate and to kind of like, um, to make it accessible for people, to make it something that people, there were people didn't feel like they were being left out and outed like they were in, in reality, in society, because, you know, the, the mentality of, and, you know, Brexit also happened whilst mm. we were shooting this. You know, there's so many sort of things that really sort of intrinsically made me quite sad as a human. Um, and I thought reflected all the sort of sad things about humanity we were we were doing a show that sort of had a, an opportunity to flip that on its head and say, look, we can be better than this. People can be kind to each other. And that's been one of the sort of lasting feelings about the whole experience of doing Lucifer was that it was a show about the devil, but weirdly, it promoted so much kindness amongst its fan base um, and a real kind of like collective um, love thy neighbour attitude amongst its uh, fan base, which is, you know, a beautiful irony, really. <laughs> that is. <laughs> giving us about Lucifer, that is a great irony to it. We were talking <laughs> about the first, but I mean, the nudity, like we were saying, is behind that is a shit ton of work as well. Like, I was reading about your devil training and it's three months of training, two hours a day, six days a week. How intense has that been for you? And how has that shaped your own relationship with your own body image, would you say? It's been, that, that's been an interesting journey. I mean, I took that on, um, like, the big kind of, like, physical change happened actually when the show got cancelled and then we came back to Netflix. And it wasn't, no one asked me to do that. Mm-hmm. That was something that I took on myself because 
I something me and my trainer Paolo had been talking about for a while, and he was like, I really feel like you could really, you know, because I was someone who who went to the gym but didn't really have a lot of goals and didn't really kind of, I was just kind of content and like, you know, I'd still like drink and eat the same stuff and all that. So I wasn't fully benefiting from the experience of all the time I was putting in there. And he said, look, if you really commit to this, you could, we, you know, we could get you into like men's health shape was like the quote that we were that we were talking about. And I, I knew what he meant by that, but I also knew how much fucking hard work that was. <laughs> And, I, and I'd had this like beautiful excuse for the last few years that I was just too busy. Um, but then when um, when the show was cancelled and there was this kind of like period of time where we weren't sure what was going to happen to it, um, Paolo said, "Look, if you if the show gets saved, let's do a bet. If the show gets saved, you'll do the men's health like push." And I was like, "Okay," <laughs> thinking, "Well, I don't think it's going to get saved." Um, and, and then. And, of course, it did get saved, and the first call I got was from Paolo going, are you ready? <laughs> and you were like, I'm not ready. Um, and, 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 oh, my, oh, my God, let's go for it. But it was that was an incredible experience because, again, I learned about myself that I can have that discipline. I can push for these things and whatever. In the greater scheme of things, what has it done about like being body conscious and all that? I, am, I, I think there's a danger tipping point when you get really into that space of getting too body conscious. Mm and too into it and actually it can it can be unhealthy mm. but I, I strongly encourage people to get as fit and healthy as possible whatever because I just think the ultimate mental side of it is that you will feel better about yourself working out does help with your mental health but if if all your life is about is working out then that's going to screw with your mental health it's weird actually to having this conversation now because I was on a flight a couple of days ago and I watched this documentary that Michael Phelps had made about mental health and about um Olympic athletes and about how they have this singular focus, this obsessive focus, you know, for four years to get to this thing. And then it's just gone like that. Mm. And even if you, if you've won or even if you won or lost, it still leaves you with this emptiness. And I think that there is a danger, you know, when people really obsess about working out and you start going on social media and like looking at people's bodies and how kind of shredded and all that sort of stuff, you know, that, that is, um, that, that is quite a toxic world as well. Like the best thing I did in the last twelve months was give up smoking, <laughs> because believe it or not, whilst I was like getting in ripped up shape and all that, I was still, you know, very good at smoking. Um, How did you do that? I, I got away with it. That's the yeah. thing. That's the thing about smoking, isn't it? People get away with it for as long as they can get away with it, and mm. then they start to really feel it. And I think as I hit forty and I was still smoking, I thought to myself, oh, "You know, you've got to stop this at some point." And um, that was all, you know, all of these things all tie into the same kind of like fitness journey and all of that. And it's just, it's like losing one vice at a time and just, you know, and slight self-improvement every, you know, rather than going for these huge and massive goals all the time, doing it all at once. No one can do that. So I got fit and then I thought I like staying fit and how can I, st- how can I get fitter and not go to the gym more? Why don't I come out smoking? Um, you know, and that was a mental challenge, but I got there. That's a whole other level of willpower, isn't it? Did it teach you that yeah. like that was the ultimate willpower in a way to give that up? Oh, for sure. And I you know, I got help as well. I was like, you know, I, I I've spoke to a therapist for years now, and I think it's one of the most helpful tools that I found in my life, having a therapist. But through my therapist, you know, because we talked about the fact I want to give up smoking and why do, why why do I find it so hard and all those things. Um, he put me in touch with someone um, that uh, was like an addictions doctor and has helped more often than not helps people give up smoking. Um, and I went down that route and I think I needed some help to go to do it because I, I completely <laughs> admire people that can do it just, you know, just 
just go cold turkey and do it. Yeah, all credit to you, but I knew that I wasn't that person. Mm. Um, and having someone talk to me and like, you know, rather than point out, oh, well, smoking's silly and smoking's this and smoking's that, I don't understand why you do it. Rather than that, having someone point out and go, this has been your friend for 20 years and I totally get it. And, you know, what are the things that you're going to miss about it and what are you going to benefit from? And just breaking it down from a much kind of like friendlier perspective where you're not feeling like you've just been self, um, self-destruct self for 25 years. Yeah. Uh, and just understand, coming from a different place on it, that really helped me. But it's been it's been it's almost a year now. And I still, um, I was just filming something in New York and there was a few times during that process where I thought, God, I'm just desperate for one. <laughs> Just to smell it in the street mm. and it's in the air and like it's just certain places and I don't know but it's it's I I, I did it a lot for my children but I did it mainly because it was at a point in my life where I just thought I've got to do this now mm. no one else is going to do it for me that was what I reached, the conclusion that I reached that is true you got sometimes you got to do it for yourself right and I think yeah as well it's, yeah. it's amazing you can sit here especially as a british guy and say that you've gone to a therapist and it's been really beneficial for you because i think there's still quite a lot of stigma around talking around that kind of stuff and especially being kind of like a british lab where we don't talk about our feelings and you know we always put it to the back burner how how much of a release has that been from you and what's maybe the biggest lesson you've taken away from having a therapist uh all, all of those things that you just touched on basically i mean i'm I, I think inherently someone who like is not again like I talked about before I don't like confrontation mm. I don't like talking about difficult things and I think being British and, the, and culturally being British that's that's all right because you don't need to yeah. but it doesn't deal with anything and the older I've gotten the more stuff I've need to deal with it doesn't get easier. It gets harder in that sense. You know, you have children and your responsibility and your, 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 your emotional responsibility just gets kind of, like, spread. And I find it incredibly... Even when I feel like I don't need to go and talk to my therapist, that's often the, the best therapy sessions that I have. Because it's like, oh, I didn't even think that I was feeling this way about this. But being able to talk about it hasn't fixed anything, but I feel better about it. And it's not kind of stewing inside of me. And we'll talk about this next week when we talk. And, and it's given me... Um, uh, I feel braver to talk about my feelings. Mm. Um, I don't feel judged about it. Because that's the other thing as well. I, I think having someone independent of anyone else in your life where you don't have to kind of like... You don't have to kind of um, dilute any of the information that you're giving to your therapist about how you feel you can just give it straight up you're not worrying about hurting people's feelings you're not worrying about you know um, any of that sensitivities you're just god I just need to talk about this thing and I've, I've found that incredibly helpful finding that out there where you can have an unfiltered conversation with someone be it a therapist or even mm-hmm. some people can find that with people in their lives I always find that even if I'm trying to have an unfiltered conversation I will then have a there'll be a little tiny filter that comes in somewhere on the line I'm mm-hmm. like okay I'm just going to tell you that part of the story, but I focus on this part. Yeah, and, of course. And that's, of course. It's so freeing, isn't it? And so beneficial and one of the best things you can do for yourself, right? Absolutely. And, and, that, and that's the key thing. It's like yourself. It's like one thing that I've learned in this whole experience of whatever is you need to spend some time checking in with yourself because if mm. you don't, then things catch up with you later down the road. And I, that, that's, that's my biggest sort of takeaway from, from doing therapy. Mm. 
it's it's a forced you know it's a forced kind of intervention and I don't use intervention like in a in the way that everyone thinks about it but it's just like inter- intervening with myself once a week to go by the way you need to just go and check in and just talk about these things that you're collecting and processing quietly in the back of your head mm. um, and I, you know it's it, it's a privilege to be able to go and do that once a week as well because it can be quite an expensive pursuit but you don't have to do it once a week you can do it once a month you can do it, you know, whenever. But don't, my, my thing is that everyone assumes therapy, certainly in the UK, in my experience, was that therapy is for when things are broken mm. and you need to fix them. And I, it, for me, it's not about that. Therapy is about trying to navigate your way through life so you don't keep breaking things. <laughs> <laughs> and gives you the tools, right? right? And a new level of equipment. It gives you the tools, exactly. And so you don't, you learn, you know, you don't, you learn not to, hopefully, not repeat behave, mm. you know, in things that could have been destructive. Mm. Um, and just having a better kind of um, sense of self um, and sense of uh, another voice, a diplomat, you know, um, someone who can hold you accountable because we're not very good at holding ourselves accountable a lot of the time. Um, and I think we all, like, if we're really honest with ourselves sometimes, we know the answers, but we're too scared to ask ourselves the question, and that's what therapy does for me. Mm. It forces someone to ask, the que- to ask the question I'm too scared to ask myself. Mm. I love that. Do you think that helped you, going through that process, helped you deal with the last 18 months that we've all been through a little bit easier, would you say, or... How did it equip you for the the crazy world we've been living in the last eighteen months? It it certainly because um, here's the thing about feeling like there's a difference between depression and feeling depressed, mm. and there are different degrees within that spectrum. But it's what it did do was there were times in the last eighteen months, and certainly I spent a lot of time away from my kids during that time, and it was horrific for me. Like that was just like the worst possible feeling that I could feel. That's what I felt like. And I was really low at times and really kind of, um, I found it really difficult. I found it really difficult, but at least having a therapist, I was able to kind of like say this out loud mm. and I was able to not feel, I was able to understand why I was feeling the way I was feeling rather than just going, I just feel like this. And just even that is a, is a, is a step in the right direction. It's one foot in front of the other. And it's because what what do you you know if you're feeling like that if you're feeling just like the walls are coming in and there's no way out you you can just sit there and take that or you can do something about it and thankfully I've got people around me that's you know that are helpful in that department and also understand how helpful therapy is um but like having those check-ins during lockdown for sure was was helpful Mm. for sure it's never it's never not helpful that's the thing I would say about it I think what you said earlier was so great is that it's always beneficial to check in on yourself, right? Like, that is Mm an amazing way to live your life. And I think you are such a king for literally sitting here and saying that and talking very openly about that stuff. But you've got a crown on top of that head. You are a king in your own right. But who do you think has passed that crown onto you and inspired you the most? Ooh, wowzers. Um, It's so interesting. Like, I think that... um... My older sister is someone who's just amazing at talking and counselling. Like she's a trained, she's a pastor, but she's also a trained counsellor, and she's someone who just um, is able to talk about really heavy stuff without it feeling heavy and so articulately. I think my wife Megan as well is someone who you know has grown up um, 
with uh, you know she's and she's very open about this when we're talking I you know, say that she suffers from depression but she has depression and you know has had to find the tools through her life to 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 work with that and um and um so I think those two people have really sort of inspired me in, in this particular area of like um checking in with myself yeah I love that. Well, you can polish that crown, take it off your head for two seconds while we just go to this <laughs> quick ad break and I will see you on the other side. Rain and Pandora's latest collection, Pandora Me, are both all about celebrating who you are and telling your story in your own way. Their latest collection of bracelets, rings, hoops and necklaces can be completely customised to create your own individual pieces of jewellery. Pandora Me is all about self-expression and trust me, there is a piece for everyone. So if you want to tell your story or switch up your mood through jewellery, this is for you. Prices range from £15 to £200 and it's in stores now or on uk.pandora.net. I think that the whole of the UK first fell a little bit in love with you when you were in Miranda. And I mean, from a personal point of view, when I was going through lockdown, I couldn't watch anything new for a period. And I had to watch things that I like loved and enjoyed and gave me joy. And it was either Gavin and Stacey or it was Miranda on repeat. And I think it was such a special, amazing show that really captured so many people's hearts in so many ways. What is your kind of fondest memory of that experience and creating that amazing warmth that came through people's TV screens? Um, gosh, I know. Again, like a huge part of my life that was. I, I think um, I think when we won, you know, after the first season came out, we won a couple of comedy awards and that is the, the first time I've ever been involved in anything, certainly from the start, that I had gotten that recognition. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, I was, t- I was at the comedy, I remember being at the comedy awards and seeing lots of people that I loved yeah. and really respected. And they'd all, they all were coming up going, oh my God, I love Miranda. Oh my God, we love Miranda. Oh my God, we love Miranda. And I'm like, this is, this is new. <laughs> <laughs> this is new. Because it, my, experience, my experience with Miranda was, I remember getting the pilot script for it when it was still called Miranda Hart's Joke Shop. And... I didn't really know. I knew vaguely who Miranda was, but I'd never seen any of her stand-up stuff that she'd done. Um, I'd seen tiny bits of pieces of stuff that she'd done, but I didn't really know her work. And um, I got this script, and it was, you know, as you as you can imagine, having watched the show, if you look at that script not knowing anything about it, it's bonkers. And I, I, I was thinking to myself, I, I think this is funny. I just, I can't, just I couldn't sure. work it out. But I... But I'm going to go into the audition um, because Miranda's going to be at the audition. I'm going to read it with her. That was the moment that it all made sense because I met Miranda. We got on like a house on fire and then we started reading it together. And I'm like, oh, my God, she's hilarious. And now this, this because all the way she talks is all written down on the page. But the way that she the way that she delivers it is the thing about Miranda. And it suddenly just made sense. And I was like, oh, oh, this is really funny. And this, this is really different, really different to other things that have been going on. So we made the pilot, and I remember thinking during that experience, I'm really enjoying this, but I'm not sure that people are going to like this show because at the time, you know, comedy had really moved in a direction that was like The Office mm. and um, the, thick, the thick of it. And this kind of like very sort of um, cynical single-camera comedy and the kind of like joyful 1980s sitcoms with the audience and all that had just kind of like gone away. Um, and so I and and the humour of Miranda was very innocent, 
and it wasn't this kind of edgy sort of uh, way that comedy had gone. Um, but it was just amazing to sit there with, a, with an audience and watch their reaction. So we filmed the first season and it felt like every recording that we did, people are really enjoying this, people are really loving it. And then it came out and it was like, it was on BBC Two when it first came out and it was like, oh, people are like, people are telling me how much they're enjoying Miranda. I wasn't expecting people to watch this. And then it got the Comedy Awards and then we did another season and it just started to snowball. And I was just so happy that people were having the same reaction to her that I was having. It was just, just that you can't, it's just, she's a genius. And... Whatever it is that Miranda has got, it's this unashamed fun and this embracing of the unashamed fun and the self-deprecation and the way that the way that it all fell into place is just unique. And it was a huge, you know, it was a huge thing in my career and it was a huge part of my life. And I just um, I look back at it so fondly all the time. Um, and we're still great mates now. I just uh, I, I, I couldn't say whether we'd ever do more of it. But if she ever asked me to do more, I'd be right there, basically. I'm encouraging you to do more. Even just like, you know, a Gavin and Stacey, like, one-off special situation. Like, I think it could be great. Listen, I think the BBC have um, have strongly, like, you know, encouraged Miranda to come back and do some more. It's such huge success to have that show and then go into Lucifer. And I think that we can be so guilty of in this world that we live in just looking at success without looking at the hard graft that goes behind that success. And I mean, you touched on this earlier, but, you know, Lucifer got cancelled after three seasons and you literally launched your own campaign to literally resurrect it. When has been a moment in your journey, in your career, where you've kind of questioned yourself the most and really had to dig deep to keep going and find your resilience? I think um, my, my experience of trying to work in America because it didn't happen overnight. It's not like I did Miranda and then I got a part in Lucifer. Mm. It just didn't happen that way. I did, before I did Miranda, in 2009 or 2008, I'd come over to America to do what they call pilot season over here, which is um, during, like, February and March every year, all the TV net... And it's changed a bit now because TV's changed a bit, but all the big TV networks over here would be doing... would be casting their pilots for their next, you know, their next uh, cycle of, of programming. And um, it's like a festival of auditioning, basically. There's so much stuff going on. And um, the, the, more often than not, there's a lot of Brits here during that time. Um, and everyone kind of like meets up at night time. Oh, have you been up for this? Have you been up for that? Have you heard about this? Have you heard about that? And most people's experience, and this was my experience as well, was that you would spend, you know, four or five hours the night before an audition, because you'd only just got the pages for it, learning 10 pages of dialogue to go in and audition the next day. And then you go to the audition and they say, okay, thanks very much. And then you leave. And that's it. And it's a really kind of like, it's brutal mm. in that sense. The amount of like work you are expected to do um, uh, to give yourself a chance is, is a lot. And, and the amount of rejection you get is unnatural. And so like I put myself through, and not forgetting that, you know, I, Yes, Miranda hadn't happened yet, but I'd, all, I'd had a really nice career up to that point. I worked all the time in the UK, and I was used to being a working actor. And it felt like I was starting again, the way in which people would respond to me in rooms. Um, so I found that really, really tough. Um, thankfully, at the end of that first pilot season, I did get a job. Um, and I was like, this is it. This has happened. I can't believe it. I got the pilot. 
And, you know, I went to Prague and I filmed this pilot and it was for Paul Schuring had just made Prison Break. And it was with Fox and it was all these big kind of like things. I was like, oh my gosh, this is it, this is it. And during that process of making the pilot, people were saying, oh, this is definitely going to happen. This is going to be a big series and all that. And I left Prague thinking this is it. And about um, three or four weeks later, um, I'd heard that the they put the edit together and Fox had watched it and that was it. It wasn't going to go any further. And I was just like, oh. So this whole kind of like experience of like, you know, and the pedestal that I put the American experience on had just kind of like come crashing down. And I found that really tough. And I really found it like, why am I doing this? What am I chasing have I, you know, am I capable? Am I talented enough? All of the sort of questions you ask yourself. Um, and after that experience is when Miranda happened in the UK. And, and, and weirdly, I think I needed that to happen to sort of cement some belief back in myself mm. um, and to kind of um, give me some kind of leverage <laughs> when I was like meeting new people. Because, like, what they love over here is a success story. So when Miranda became successful, people are going, we don't have the show Miranda, but we've heard it's great. So, hey, uh, you know, it's like it suddenly changes the game a little bit. So I think that I would say that is, you know, learning to deal with the rejection and how brutal the rejection is and still maintaining a belief in yourself and belief that you have something that other people don't. Would you define success as finding that self-belief in yourself? Or how would you define success and failure now? I think, I mean, success for me, like, when I, you, I mean, it's changed over the years. When I first left drama school, I was like, success for me would be, like, making a living out of acting. Mm. Not, like, becoming rich and famous, but, like, getting a job and then getting another job and getting another job and not having to work behind a bar. That, for me, would be success. Yeah. And, um, you know, that started to happen for me, and that was great. But then as you sort of, like, live in that world, you're like, well, then I would like this, and I would like this. And, like... I think that, you know, there was a point in me once going, I'd love to go to America and, and, you know, front a successful series in America. Um, And now that's happened, I'm like, you know, I want to do films, I want to go back to theatre. There's so many things that I want to do. But I think the success side of it is like, for me, for me, I think it's having choice and having the kind of like reassurance that I think that I'm not, having that intrinsic thing that all actors have and I still think about it this way but all actors think I'm never going to work again Mm. when they finish a job Um, and I kind of feel like hopefully (laughs) I I still have to preface it with hopefully but I think I've got myself to a position where I do think that I'm going to work again and all of those things and and hopefully I'll have a bit of choice about what it is I do next Mm. and not feel compelled to do the next thing that comes in through the door or the next job I get offered so that, that for me, and, and be able to kind of like spin those plates with my family life, and that for me is success. Because I think also the problem with success is, is once you get a little taste of it, you want more of it, right? So then you have to, yeah. and if you're constantly reaching for whatever external level of success is out there, and it's always justified by something external, then you're always going to come into problems because the success kind of has to come within, right? Well, yeah. Well, it stops you enjoying the, the success that you're currently having. Mm. You know, and a lot of actors will say this, they spend a lot of time complaining they haven't got a job, and then when they get a job, they do it, and then they're looking at what the, the next job's going to be after that whilst they're still doing the job that they've just got. They're never happy. Never. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a collect- I always think a collective of actors should be called a moan, a moan of actors. <laughs> One thing I have learned in the last few years is I've really got to try and enjoy the experience I'm going through. Mm. And so... 
you know, having gone through, done a couple of pilots that didn't then get picked up into series, my mentality changed. It's not like it's all on this. It's like, do you know what? I'm just going to do the best I can do with the opportunity I've got and see what happens. And that became a bit more of a, you know, I, I took a lot of kind of burden off my shoulders by changing my attitude about that. And now you got to this point where you've had this very iconic character that so many people love and you're saying goodbye to it, which is, must be, is that a bit of a mourning process you've been going through with that? It's kind of, it's kind of bittersweet. I mean, yeah, it, it's strange because season five of Lucifer was, uh, was announced as that was going to be the final season. Mm. So, and when I first heard that, I was like, oh. Um, but at the same time, there was a, I had so much more peace about that than I did when it was cancelled, you know, two, two years before that. So I just thought, okay, well, we now know when we're finishing, we know we can tell our story and all of those things. So I then spent the process of shooting season five as kind of like I was just quietly mourning it. And I didn't ever want people to talk about the end of the show. I just wanted to be at work and enjoy it every day. Um, and so I, that, that, was, that was basically part of uh, my catharsis of the whole thing. And, and then we got to like... We'd nearly finished shooting season five. We were about to do the end of the show. And then Netflix asked us if we wanted to do another season. And I was like, what? Okay, <laughs> I think. Uh, you know, it was like akin to a marathon runner just getting to the finishing line. And they were going, you've got 10 more miles, go. You're like, what? Oh, okay. Um, it, it, it was... It was. I then had to kind of like reinvigorate myself about the character in a weird sort of way because I'd been ready to say goodbye. So by the end of season six, I truly was ready to say goodbye to Lucifer. Um, because I, I, and I think it was just about the right time because I've played him for long enough. Um, that I, I really have a deep affection for him, but I also didn't want to start hating him and hating the, the playing of him. Mm. And, um, you know, we've done 92 episodes. I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot. It's time to put down those horns. It's, it's time to <laughs> hang the horns up and just do something else, you know? Um, I I'm feel very sort of like satisfied at the end of this experience now. It feels it feels like the right time. Mm. It's an amazing moment to get to. And whilst you're hanging up those horns, it brings us to the feature in the podcast, which is the Royal Email, mm. where our listeners out there write in to our King or Queen of the Week with their little woes and problems in life, and they ask you to help solve them. So oh my gosh. Are, are you ready to get your Agony King on? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Agony King. He's an Agony King. 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 He's the Agony King. King of Agony. King of the Agony. King of Agony. Well, okay. this is quite an apt one because, I mean, people have been pretty thirsty for you at different times, but this is from, we're going to call her Thirsty Sue. I'm thirsty for my guy, pal. He's my best friend. I don't know how to approach it. How should she go about this, Tom? <sighs> Should she lay it on Ooh. thick, factor 50, or should she be a little bit less thirsty, more like a little bit parched? Well, I think if you lay it on thick, you are in danger of scaring it off and like ruining the friendship. Mm-hmm. A little bit. Um, so uh, I would, I would, you know, I'd, I'd just take it a bit more gently. Um, but I also, you know, I think that maybe some um, alcohol needs to be involved in, in the conversation. I think this is a two glass of rosé conversation um, and just slowly going, you know, I was such, I, I, I love being a friend and stuff, but what I've realised over this time is that maybe I feel a bit more than that. And um, 
just feel it out a bit more rather than just because I, I I think if you go straight in like that, you're gonna maybe you're in danger of scaring them off. Yeah, loosen the situation up with a couple of like rosés. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. It's a great motto for life in any situation. Exactly. But drink responsibly, kids. (laughs) Yes, exactly. We never have a full rosé conversation. No, 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 because then that is when it goes south. Okay, this is a bit of a dramatic one, actually. I have been with my boyfriend for nine months. I love him, but he's never said I love you. How do I read him? Should our complete perform some sort of witchcraft to get to love her back or should she just ask him outright well okay well this is a tough one because i can't even i can't fathom that being with someone for nine months and not yeah that that not coming out that's a long time to be with someone without expressing that depth of feeling yeah but my question is is he someone who expresses depth of feeling like that or is he a a british man like we've been talking about where he doesn't he doesn't express himself in that way is he out there telling his mum and dad that he loves them to pieces all the time because if he is i'd start to worry a little bit (laughs) But if he isn't, if he isn't, and like he just generally doesn't express to people how he feels about them, then okay, cool, you should just ask him. Yeah. Say, look, I, it would mean a lot to me to know in words, because I know that I love you. I mean, nine months, wowzers. Yeah, that's a long time. I mean, uh, I'm pretty like a lovey-dovey person, so I think I would probably would have said it within like nine weeks, but... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I also feel like, I mean, everybody's different, yeah. but I also feel like in my life when I feel like I'm in love, I, I kind of know that. Pretty, Pretty sort of soon, soon into the equation, yeah. <laughs> Pretty soon, certainly not nine months. Yeah. <laughs> well, it has been amazing speaking to you today, Tom. And we always end on one last question, which is: In the reign of your life, what is the one rule you will always live by? Never go back to a lit firework. <laughs> and I mean that. Metaphorically and actually, and actually. I love that. Yeah. (laughs) I love that. It works on safety reasons in real life, but also emotional safety. Relationships. Relationships. I I think I'm definitely referring to on this one as well. Never go back to a lit firework. I love that. Well, guys, stay away from fireworks if you're listening to this. <laughs> and thank you so much for the safety bulleting at the end of that, Tom. <laughs> Thanks, Josh. It's been great talking to you. Been amazing you. talking to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me for another incredible episode of Rain. I really hope you found something to take away from this chat. And if you have, let me know. Get me on socials at Josh Smith Hosts. And the Royal Email Bag is always open for your problems. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, please like, rate, subscribe, or follow. And ultimately, please share this conversation with someone you think needs to hear it. It might just open up the conversations you never knew you needed. Mm-hmm.